It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It's an old story with a new twist. A top administrator of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops resigned after someone leaked information about their private life. Monsignor Jeffrey Brill left his post after a Catholic-oriented substack accused him of being a frequent user of Grindr. Simple on the surface, but our obsession with the sex lives of the clergy is masking something darker. As we reported earlier, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has named an interim general secretary following the surprise resignation yesterday of Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, but many questions remain. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is now questioning the company's use of customer data, sharing info with marketing and analytics companies. What these analytics do is they collect a lot of very specific information about a phone and about a user who's using a specific app. So for instance, what you're clicking on the app, how long you're using it for, but also what your kind of device you're on, what sort of Wi-Fi you're using to connect uh, through the app. This is different because they found the proof of this misconduct using anonymous app data. And what they found with that data is insane. This information can still be used to track bishops and clergy, and in this case, identify those who have been doing things that violate their clerical vows and could possibly bring scandal to the church. And your location data might be in some of this anonymous data. How, exactly, did the Substack know that Monsignor Burrell was using Grindr? How many of our apps are spying on us and collecting this kind of data? And just how easy is it for a vicious third party to get hold of that data for nefarious ends? Here to answer those questions and more is Motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's get the very basics of the story down first. Who is Monsignor Burrell, and why did the pillar, the name of this Catholic substack, care about his comings and goings? So Burrell was a senior member of this religious organization, and obviously as part of that, the organization and potentially the people around it have certain expectations uh, of him. And the pillar, this substack organization, this substack uh, media outlet, they obtained what they called app signal data which managed to track the movements of Burrell as he moved from place to place. Um, this was apparently an anonymous data set, but as, as we all know, it can be relatively trivial to de-anonymize people in that sort of data. And in this case, they bought the data or somehow otherwise obtained it. They said it's commercially available, so it's possible to purchase it, presumably. And they looked at different locations of a phone that may belong to him. You know, oh, there's a phone by his house. There's a phone by this residence as well. They figured out it was him. They then track to see where else that phone goes as a proxy for his movements. And they find that he is visiting uh, gay bars as well. And that is something that the organization uh, is not going to look favorably upon. Gotcha. And so this was app data that came from Grindr, correct? So the supply chain is a little bit complicated. The data is linked to Grindr, at least according to the pillar write-up. They say it's app data from Grindr. Um, so, you know, that that is what they're saying. That is the ultimate source of it. But it probably wouldn't be fair to say that the pillar just went and bought this um, from Grindr. 
as you know, listeners will know, the supply chain is very convoluted, uh, complex, and sometimes opaque, as we've shown, where we've tracked data from you know a Muslim prayer app through various brokers, eventually to third parties such as government uh, agencies. In this case, uh, after the article, I was going through some of the the technical details, and Grinder, uh, the app itself, had a bunch of different. SDKs or software development kits embedded with inside it that would have taken location data. This is where the pillar may have got the data from. Maybe they bought it from one of the um, location gatherers nestled inside the Grinder app, or perhaps more, even more likely, one of those SDKs sold the location data to another broker who then gave it to um, the pillar. I mean, what this just shows is that if Grinder is allowing these SDKs into its app to collect this location data, they don't really know what happens to it afterwards. You know, we've seen what some of this location data looks like. And in some cases, it's literally a .csv file, which you just send and or receive, and it has a bunch of GPS locations in it. It could just be something as simple, but yet as powerful as that. So I just want to get if we can dig just a little bit into like the ad tech of this all. So we've essentially got like, we have all these programs on our phone that are collecting various amounts of data on us at all times. And then that data is then sold through to different brokers attached to different things and supposedly is getting anonymized on the way, but it doesn't ever quite work out that way. Right. So presumably what they did here is they kind of knew where he lived and where his locations were and they had this data and they kind of overlaid and they figured out what his phone was and then watched the dot move around. Is that basically what happened? Yeah, they're essentially reverse engineering sort of uh, the data set to figure out who the phone belongs to. You don't buy the data and it says, oh, this phone belongs to this person. It may have a anonymous or a pseudonymous ID, uh, but it doesn't say it belongs to specifically this person. But if you already know some information uh, about the target or a potential target, you can, in a lot of cases, um, figure out who that um, phone actually belongs to. And that's what it seems they've done here. I mean, even we've done similar things where we got some vehicle location data from an Israeli company called Autonomo. Uh, and that had a very complex supply chain as well. But basically, we were able to follow a vehicle. And when it was parked outside a house uh, for, you know, uh, overnight or a long period of time, we can infer, well, that's probably where that person is living or at least staying. You then look at property records, you find out who that person potentially is. And other um, outlets have done similar things. And New York Times is unmasked people who were at the January 6th Capitol uh, riots. And they did essentially what the, pill, what the pillar did here, uh, but with a different you know, sort of target, let's say. They weren't necessarily trying to humiliate this person, uh, but they were unmasking their identity. Just the idea that this sort of data is anonymous is a complete farce, essentially. And the other thing that that really struck me in the pillar story is the quote commercially available. Cause I, you, I initially see the story. I immediately think, Oh, they bought some information off the dark web, but that's maybe not what happened here or probably not what happened here at all. Right. 
Right, totally. Again, it, it is hard to say who exactly or where exactly they bought the data from. I have reached out to um, one company or a couple of companies that are suspects, but you know we're we're still uh, working on that at the moment. But yeah, this isn't you know something that you get from a hacker or on a dark web forum or a Russian crime forum or something like that. Although, of course, you know um, maybe some there could be some overlap there. But generally speaking, these are quote unquote actually legitimate businesses. I mean, I have bought location data from a company called SafeGraph. Uh, that was a bit more aggregated in that instance where you said, well, I want to see sort of the foot traffic of this specific GPS um, location. I want to see how busy that area is. And that data in and of itself wasn't that useful. But all you have to do is find another vendor who does give you the granularity that you're after. Maybe it includes, you know, their movements over time. Maybe it includes a mobile advertising ID, which is that pseudonymous uh, identifier connected to phones, which you can then pay another company to uh, provide you the real information, the real identity on that device as well. It's just that this is such a busy market. There are dozens, if not hundreds of companies in this space. But it's also, <laughs> despite it being quite bustling and, and popular, it's overlooked generally, at least by people outside of ad tech. I mean, I, I, I doubt that many people have even heard of the sorts of companies that are embedded into these apps and siphoning data off. You know, it's just not something that we see as ordinary consumers of um, mobile phone applications. How, I'm going to ask a depressing question. How cheap or expensive is that data? When I bought it from SafeGraph, it was, I don't know, double digits, something like $20, I'd have to check, but it is not expensive. Uh, if obviously you're trying to do something on a larger scale and you're trying to say, I want to see all the movements in a city or, or a country or something like that, obviously the price is going to, going to go up, but this is not something just in the realm of, you know, nation states necessarily. You, of course, you will have nation states who will buy it, but they will be more buying access to a very slick uh, interfaced tool. If you're buying the raw location data and you find someone unscrupulous enough to sell it to you, it's, it's relatively cheap, you know? And when we bought black market phone location data from a bounty hunter that wasn't from an app it was you know it trickled down from the telcos that was 300 bucks and we could track somebody this is well within the budget range of essentially anybody really and this is ubiquitous meaning that like most of the apps i'd say probably all of the apps on everyone's phone are collecting data that is then sending on to somewhere else for sale it's hard to say, and it's hard to generalize fully, but I would say that it is very widespread. You know, of course, we've had recently where uh, the Apple iOS operating system has done all sorts of changes where it's notifying you, hey, this app is recording your location data uh, right now. You know, there's a little dot on, on, on your lock screen or on your home screen, so your location is being tracked. They've done pop-ups where you ask, please don't track me uh, from app to app or website to website. A slightly different sort of tracking, but there's still developments there. Uh, when we've reported on companies, um, Apple and Google has then shut down or at least cut off those location data companies. So there is some hemorrhaging or at least um, some impact on the industry, but it is still a multi-billion dollar industry. Absolutely. 
So another thing I wanted to talk to you about is kind of the reaction to this story, because I've seen kind of two different versions. There's a great headline in the Washington Post that called it a Rorschach test for Catholics, but it's also a huge Rorschach test for people who care about tech and privacy, right? Are you disconcerned about the way you're seeing this covered at all? I mean, I'm actually kind of hopeful in the way that um, the coverage came across, because I think immediately so many people cared about this you know you could care about it uh on you know a privacy level in that this person had their sexuality outed without their consent you know you, you can uh, care about it from that angle uh you can also care about it from a tech angle as well you know well there is this very complex supply chain that perhaps uh policymakers or anybody else may want to look more into uh i still think it is uh highly alarming that this sort of thing is possible in the first place. But this is uh, a pivotal moment, really, for the location data industry in that we knew this was going to happen. We've been covering it for years. Other people have been covering it for years, researchers, academics, journalists. And it basically finally happened. Uh, in, a, in a twisted sort of way, it's almost good to see those reassurances, you know, that we weren't just uh, crying wolf. Uh, when nothing was actually happening. Uh, but now, of course, it shows that it's possible and maybe other people are going to be doing it. And, of course, it raises the question of what has been going on that we don't know about. You know, if uh, if this Christian Substack publication can obtain it, what is to say that people like Black Cube or private investigators have not sort of leveraged this sort of data as well? Well, what are some of the other signals that you've seen? Because I know that we've written about specifically some of the Pentagon's concerns, right? I mean, we've covered, and the Wall Street Journal has done uh, really leading work on it as well, about how law enforcement, intelligence, and military agencies will buy this sort of commercially available smartphone location data. One of the key reasons for that is because they don't need a warrant to do so. They are paying, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, it depends on the size of the contract, to access some sort of website they log into, and they can go to a place on a Google Maps style interface, and they're like, I want to see how many phones are there. And then they can potentially track those phones and see where else they went. Essentially what the pillar did, but probably uh, in a nicer looking uh, product interface. We've known about that for about a year or so when the Wall Street Journal did it, and then we followed up. Uh, and as mentioned, that Muslim uh, prayer app, the ultimate or one of the ultimate end users of that data, uh, or sorry, ultimate end users of that supply chain, at least, maybe not specifically the data, but that was, you know, DOD, as, as you mentioned, there is special operations command. Now, if that sort of data is valuable to uh, a military or an agency, either for tracking people at scale in aggregate or potentially for de-anonymizing if they're successful, I'm pretty sure that's going to be helpful to a lot of other people, right? And whether that's going to be private business, such as private investigators or consulting firms, you know, of course, this data is already used by consulting firms to make decisions on, well, we see a load of phones uh, over on this oil rig. So clearly, there's a lot of work going on there. Let's put money into XYZ. That is now trickled down f into private individuals, it seems, or very small private entities like this Substack uh, publication. It, it's just, it always trickles down, <laughs> um, sometimes more successfully than others. Uh, 
but that's just what we're we're seeing here. It, I think the headline of our piece that Emmanuel came up with was, you know, the inevitable weaponization of app data. And I totally agree with that. We, we knew this was coming. We saw those signs. We saw the different clients having it. And now we're here. So what can people do to protect themselves? Basically, obviously, because it's so hard for the ordinary consumer to know what is happening with their data, you know, you'd have to intercept the traffic and you'd have to analyze where it's going and what sort of information is being taken off. The ordinary consumer can't do that. What they can do is be more careful and deliberate with the apps that they are installing. You know, so sure, maybe you need to have Facebook installed um, and maybe Facebook is clearing up its act a little bit so it's not giving data to so many third parties. Facebook, of course, may be doing bad stuff with the data itself that it collects, but that's sort of a different issue. So what you could do is, oh, that torch or flashlight app that you downloaded and it's requesting your contacts and your location, that doesn't need the location, really. If you have the ability to deny that access, that's great. Or, I mean, preferably for me at least, just don't install the app at all or remove it after you've used it. You know, try to keep a relatively sparse phone of apps just to increase the likelihood that you're carrying out some decent hygiene there when it comes to your location data. What's next? What do you see coming? I imagine that more people are going to try to tap into this industry if they haven't already. You know, again, there's probably so much we don't know that happens with location data. But now that this has come out, maybe other people will go, damn, why aren't we using this sort of data? This could be great. It could be married with disinformation campaigns, harassment campaigns, you know, whatever it may be. You want to target uh, a political figure in, in an upcoming election. Uh, you may use this sort of data. And I mean, that would probably be for countries, you know, that don't necessarily have the capability to track phones on a, on a large scale. Well, you can just buy it instead. I just imagine we're going to see much more devilish and nefarious uses uh, of this data once people clock onto it. Joseph Cox, the article is The Inevitable Weaponization of App Data. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber. Are you working on anything good? What's uh, what, what's in the hopper? Just more location data stuff. Trying to find more of the the companies that that you know harvest this sort of information, and of course more cases of uh, of abuse. Um, hopefully, well, not hopefully, but we'll we'll cover them when they come up. And you will talk about them here on Cyber. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher. It's that wonderful part of cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me today, as always, is motherboard staff writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bigarai. How are you doing today, Lorenzo? I'm doing pretty well, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I got I got some good sleep last night. Uh, I've got a vacation coming up. You know, it's August. 
Everything's slowing down. Everyone's tired. Everyone's just trying to avoid that wet bulb experience. Yep. It's a good time. Hopefully August is a little bit more relaxed than July. I think everyone at Motherboard was very busy last month. And on that note, let's get to some of the big stories from the last week. Uh, We'll start off with one that's kind of a follow-up to something we talked a little bit about last week, and that's Israeli authorities inspect NSO offices after damning investigation. What is going on here? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is a new development on the one of the biggest stories last month, which was the revelation that um, a group of uh, news media organizations and some Amnesty International and another nonprofit called Forbidden Stories have a list of potential targets of uh, NSO and their customers. And uh, as we talked about in the last uh, podcast or two, a bunch of articles have been coming out on uh, specific cases of abuse in Hungary, in France, in Morocco, etc. And this is the fallout from that. The Israeli Ministry of Defense has visited the office of NSO Group, along with other authorities that they did, did not want to specify. And uh, this story broke on a local Israeli uh, media website that said that it was a raid, but it sounds like it was more like a coordinated visit. It's really unclear what the visit actually entailed, uh, what the authorities, um, you know, asked asked about, whether they got some documents, whether they collected some evidence or anything. You know, for all we know, it could be just theater to show that there is some oversight. I personally see this as a pretty interesting development. Um, NSO has always said that the Ministry of Defense in Israel has uh, active oversight over each and every one of their customers. NSO says, and you know, this is the law, uh, we believe them in this, that every time they need to, every time they want to make a sale, they apply for an export license for the single uh, new customer. And at that point, the Israeli government, through the Ministry of Defense, has the chance to say, no, we don't want you to export this technology to this particular country. So if this is a sign that the Ministry of Defense is going to go back and, you know, double check all the licenses, we'll see. Uh, I understand that people are skeptical. But, you know, this is the first sign that something is up. And, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. You all got a hold of the Israeli authorities, right? Yeah. What did they say? Yeah, a spokesperson for the Ministry of Defense told us in an email that representatives of, and I quote, representatives of several bodies visited the office of NSO in order to assess the allegations raised in regards to the company, which is a pretty vague way to describe whatever happened there. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe they were looking into whether NSO was hacked. Maybe they were looking into NSO's accusations that the Palestinians were behind this. You know, it's really unclear and I don't even know if we're ever going to know exactly what sort of oversight the Minister of Defense is doing in response to these stories. All right. Well, let's put a pin in that. I'm sure that's something that we're going to keep watching and we'll keep developing as the year moves on, uh, hopefully after August. Um, all right. So next on the docket, we've got 48 advocacy groups call on the FTC to ban Amazon surveillance cameras, another kind of motherboard staple is these ring Amazon cameras and the surveillance systems that come private corporations have been building out, uh, oftentimes hand in hand with local police departments and with citizens themselves. What's going on here? Yeah. So this is an interesting proposal from 48 civil rights groups. 
organized uh, by Athena, uh, they are requesting the Federal Trade Commission to step in and ban uh, facial, facial recognition, specifically for Amazon devices, but uh, some people are arguing that this should be across the tech industry. And their argument is that this kind of uh, collection, this kind of surveillance should fall under FTC authority. And so they're advocating for the FTC to step in and ban it. Uh, which would be an interesting development because that would give it sort of a, you know, this would be a federal ban, whereas until now we've seen uh, cities banning facial recognition. I think San Francisco may have been one of the first ones, but there have been a few. But, you know, so far it's very, uh, very scattered, very localized. Uh, you know, what what does it matter if San Francisco bans facial recognition if every other city in the U.S. doesn't? So if the FTC heeds this call, then that would be effectively a federal ban and it would probably change, you know, change things and move the dial a little bit more than individual cities doing uh, these kind of bans. Yeah. And I kind of, I want to paint a picture here for the audience just very briefly about why this stuff is so concerning and why we hit on it on motherboard so often. And I may look a little bit like uh, Charlie putting up the red wire in it's always sunny in Philadelphia, but so we have to remember that Amazon is building this bizarre surveillance state out of its consumer products, right? They have these ring cameras that are on the front of people's doors that are often in uh, communication automatically with local police departments. Um, they also recently uh, turned on um, through their through the Amazon Echo and some of their other Wi-Fi enabled devices uh, a system that will allow Wi-Fi sharing between different nodes, like on your block. Um, the ostensible purpose of this is if your Wi-Fi goes down and your neighbor's Wi-Fi is up, the, you know you can borrow a little bit of your neighbor's Wi-Fi because you're all kind of in the same Amazon family. Right. Um, but they are building these cameras with machine learning and, and AI algorithms that we know have bias programmed into them. Um, and also, like, there's one thing to set up a closed circuit camera on your own front porch so you can see who's coming and going. It's another thing to set up a camera that's plugged into these large data centers that is, you know collecting the data, sorting it and using it, you you become a node in this larger machine. And I think that that's what's really frightening here. And, you know, a lot of my next door posts are really pleasant in the area I live in. We get a lot of stuff about snakes. There's a lot of stuff about hawks. Some guy's got a hawk problem. Um, there's nothing you can do about a hawk problem. You just let the hawk take care of itself, by the way. But we also have really creepy next door posts. It's always ring cameras. Um, capturing people just kind of walking down the street, the people that they don't particularly like the look of. So I just kind of want to throw that out there and make sure that people understand the context here, why the FTC would look at even banning something like this. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you, you made a great point when you compared, you know, having a ring with a, a traditional old school camera. You know, this is not the same. Also, uh, customers don't know how this data is going to be used, right? There's, you know, privacy policies and all that, but how many people actually read them? Uh, what do they actually mean? Um, you know, we don't know if Amazon is going to create some products out of this. Uh, they're probably training other products with uh, people's faces. And again, these are not, you know, this is not me taking a selfie and willingly uploading it to Google Photos. This is 
you know, videos and pictures of strangers on the street. It's like way more creepy and, you know, raises all kinds of questions on consent, uh, surveillance of public spaces and all that. So, yeah, hopefully this um, this initiative goes somewhere. At least, you know, even if the FTC doesn't choose to ban, it would be great to have a, a federal agency more involved in oversight. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to this last story, which is something that I think kind of consumed our newsroom, both the Waypoint side and the motherboard side last week. I know that you worked on it a whole bunch. I worked on some other aspects of it. Um, This story was really telling of the, the larger story that's going on, which is Blizzard and its legal troubles and its, uh, history like proven history of sexual harassment and sexual mistreatment of women the title of it is blizzard recruiters asked hacker if she liked being penetrated at job fair lorenzo you wrote this you talked to everybody what the hell yeah this is really something that uh, i wish i didn't have to write and i wish it never happened uh, but unfortunately it did and you know this comes into the context of what some you know, the story that some of our listeners may be uh, aware of, but just as a way of a quick recap, uh, two weeks ago, the state of California sued uh, Activision Blizzard, the games giant, for fostering a workplace uh, that was a breeding ground for sexual harassment and discrimination against women. Uh, the lawsuit has all sorts of examples and really sickening anecdotes and we found out that in 2015 uh, blizzard was at black hat which is one of the largest hacking conferences in the world and the company was sponsoring the conference which meant that they had a a booth in what was called the career zone so it's the part of the conference where companies were recruiting attendees and um, at the time a woman called emily mitchell who was a uh, looking for looking for a job at the time, she approached the um, the Blizzard booth and started inquiring about a penetration testing job. Uh, probably cyber listeners know what a penetration testing job is, but it's essentially industry lingo for security audit. Very common uh, lingo. And you know, even before she asked for this job, you know, she inquired about this job opening. The Blizzard employees were like, hey, are you lost? Are you here with your boyfriend? Sort of implying, you know, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And then when she asked for that, they were, they, you know, things immediately escalated. Um, and she said that one of them asked uh, whether, well, when was the last time she was personally penetrated, if she liked being penetrated, and how often she got penetrated, which is, you know, awful. Like, you know, the fact that you know, these kind of comments even at a party would be awful. But the fact that they were made, you know, on the floor of a conference where the company was that was the company was sponsoring, where these employees were in theory trying to recruit people is, you know, just staggering. Um and yeah, we, we spoke to Mitchell and uh, Black Cat and Blizzard. Blizzard declined to comment, so they didn't take the chance to say anything about this. Uh, Black Hat uh, did say that they were made aware of this in 2017 and offered Mitchell some sort of recourse, which was, uh, you know, to their credit, Black Hat said, we're not going to allow Blizzard again as a sponsor, which hasn't happened yet. Well, there's another there's another follow up here, too. I want to I want to I want you to explain because she went on to get another job and had another interaction with Blizzard. Right. Yeah, this is the the good 
part of the story and sort of the funny part of the story. Uh, two years later, in 20, 2017, uh, she was working for a company that at the time was called uh, Sagita or Sagita. Uh, it's now called Terahash and st- she still works there. Um, so in 2017, Blizzard reached out to the company for some security work. They wanted to hire the company, completely unaware of this incident and unaware of the fact that Mitchell was working there. And when Mitchell saw that Blizzard had reached out, she told the CEO of the company, whose name is Jeremy Gosney, she basically said, hell no, we're not doing this. And when he asked, why not? What's, you know, what's the problem with Blizzard? She told him about this incident in 2015. And Gosney then went on to send like a scathing email to Blizzard, basically saying, hey, uh, my CEO, operating officer at the company, Terahash, uh, Gosney was like, yeah, she told me about this incident. You know, we don't like this kind of stuff at this company. You know, normally I would just uh, just move on. But in this case, I want to give you a chance to sort of uh, make this right. So we'll, we'll continue with this uh, contract if you pay a 50% misogyny tax, uh, which will be donated to a bunch of uh, nonprofits that encourage uh, the participation of women in the tech and cybersecurity. And Blizzard did not accept this. Um, Mitchell says that they, their lawyers did reach out and spoke to her and make, made some, you know, some promises that she herself described as empty promises, you know, of an investigation of, of some sort of a inquiry within the company. It's unclear what happened. And again, Blizzard declined to comment. So we don't really know. But Mitchell said that she didn't really feel like Blizzard was interested in uh, finding out what actually happened. Uh, she said that she felt like Blizzard was more interested in figuring out if they were they had some sort of like some legal danger, basically. Yeah, I think that sounds par for the course for most of the Blizzard stories we're hearing these days. All right, well, that will wrap up another wonderful edition of Cipher. Lorenzo, where can people find your work or tip you on Signal? They can find me at Lorenzo FB on Twitter, and I'm on. I'm at 917-257-1382 on Signal. All right. I will talk to you next week. I know you're working on uh, some other gaming-related stories from a different angle. and looking forward to hearing those. Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.